Father, just I ask you to prepare each of us right now for what is in the text. Father, we are in a world in which the truth of your word is at risk and is, at, is under attack in so many ways and so many times, so many places. That's nothing new. Your word has always been attacked by those who would seek to uh, oppose you. But perhaps nowhere more so than in the account of creation that you authored so that we might know the truth. And yet the world, Father, is determined to create a falsehood in replacement of, of that truth. And Father, we may not even realize in our own life how much some of those falsehoods have come to influence our thinking and our beliefs and how damaging they can be to our walk. So I ask, Father, that while we study this morning and give our mind and attention back to the Word again, that perhaps for the first time we would see the truth in a way that clarifies and cuts through the falsehoods that have impinged themselves upon us and perhaps we've agreed with them over time. Set aside our pride, Father, so that if it feels hard and difficult to accept the truth because it admits that we were brought into a false view, then, Father, I pray you would take that obstacle away so that we would embrace the truth. And if we have already come to embrace it, Father, and this is a good reminder, then I pray that it would strengthen us to speak the truth to others. Use it in any of these ways, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remember how we approached chapter 2 in the book of Genesis from last week? The story that Moses tells in the book of Genesis has a pattern to it, a, a pattern that I described as zooming in, zooming out, zooming in, zooming out. Uh, if you were a pilot, you would think of it as descending low, then going up to high altitude. The way Moses takes long periods of time, talks about them at a very high level, and then after that he will go into a period of chapters in which he takes just some small slice of that earlier period and gets into the details about that one little slice. This chapter, chapter 2, is the first example of that back and forth pattern. Whereas chapter 1 was an overview of the first week of life, now chapter 2 becomes the zooming in, the low-level detail on one day out of those original seven. So that tells us automatically we're going back in time again. That for the next chapter at least, we're going to move backward in time long enough to get some detail. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and I think you'll begin to see immediately what I'm talking about. Verse 4 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Well, we'll pause there. In fact, we'll pause at multiple points along this journey, as you might expect, because the details are rich, even if the text is very parsimonious. Moses is telling the story of man again. Remember last week, I told you that for many who would criticize the Bible and view it in non-literal ways, they come to the first two chapters of Genesis as one example of where they believe the Bible is uh, unreliable. And they highlight the fact that in chapter 2, verse 4, it sounds as if there's a whole new story beginning. Almost as if it's a competing account with the one that we got in chapter 1. 
And some men have come to the Bible and said, well, this must be a different account written by a different person than the first account, a different myth. And then over time, the two myths were just put in the Bible together. Well, that's not at all what we're looking at here. This is Moses, the same author, going back in time to the same week and retelling it now with a different emphasis. In chapter 1, the earth was formed from front to back, everything in it, in perfection. Remember, every day was good. And at the very conclusion of it all, it was all very good. An emphasis in the Hebrew that reflects the fact that now it was perfect. There was nothing left to do. And that's how God came to rest, to cease. And in it was a man and a woman. Remember, day six said he created them, male and female. So on day six, you have man and woman in existence. They are also perfect. By virtue of them being very good and by virtue of the fact that God has made everything just as he wanted it. So now Moses starts chapter two with an attempt, with an interest in answering a question that the logical, careful, thinking Bible student is going to have at this point. If this was the first time you ever read the book of Genesis, you had no idea what was coming. You reach the end of chapter one and you have a question or a thought in your head, almost certainly. And the thought is, how did we get to our current state of imperfection? A decaying world, people who are sinful, all the mess of the world. It didn't start that way, so how did it get this way? That's the natural thing you ask at this point. So to tell that story, to explain why things now are not the way they were in the very beginning, Moses, at this point, begins to describe how things changed after the week. Now, it doesn't seem like he's at that point yet, of course, because he's just beginning to tell again the story of day six. But you all know as well as I do that what comes after chapter 2 is chapter 3. And in telling of chapter 3, there are details that come out of chapter 2. So chapter 2 is a kind of prologue. It sets up the rest of the story of how we got to where we are today. It also gives us a lot of detail around the creation of man and woman specifically, and that's a part of the telling of the stories. So Moses begins this this next part of the story, chapter 2, verse 4, by going back to the time right before man was created. He jumps back in time right before you have man on the earth. There is, as God says here, no planting, no harvesting yet. That's the reference here to the field No shrub of the field, no plant of the field. And we're talking here about the activity of work, of farming, not of the existence of plants. Remember, day three is when plants show up. Day six is when man shows up. He's past day three, but he's not yet to day six. So we have plants. We just don't have planting. There's a difference, right? You can look in my backyard and you can tell the difference between just... The, the mere existence of plants and true cultivating, planting, etc. Big difference. Now, in the setting up of chapter 2, there's some interesting details. I'll pause because I want to cover these details and then move through the rest of the story, of course. The most interesting one, the one that obviously jumps right out at us, is the fact that there is no rain. At this point, as the story begins, Moses says, no rain on the earth. The water that's necessary to keep plants alive doesn't come out of the sky in some way that is not immediately clear to us. It rises up out of the ground, a kind of mist. You might think of it like dew in the morning in the way we see our our ground sometimes covered with water. What that tells us and what Moses is giving us here in this detail is that rain was not a part of God's original design. As he created the world in its original form, there was not the concept 
of water falling out of the sky. It wasn't necessary. He had provided for water on the ground in a different way. So that might beg then the question, when did rain begin? Well, we'll see that later in chapter 9 as we study through the rest of, of Genesis. It comes as a consequence of the flood story. But there are two interesting details I want to pull forward from that story just now to give you a partial answer. And then we'll come back later and when we get to chapters 6, 7, 8, 9 and look at it. But there is something to corroborate the theory here of the, that there is no rain. In chapter 7, for example, of Genesis, verse 11, 7, 11, easy to remember, we're told that the floodgates of the sky open up. That's the first time in which you hear of water from the sky opening. And the way the text in chapter 7, verse 11, talks about this moment, it describes in the Hebrew gates that are up there holding back water until appointed until the appointed moment in which God opens the floodgates and lets the water that's up there fall to the ground. And then later in chapter 9, this is even more compelling as evidence. In chapter 9, after the flood, God makes a covenant to assure the world, all the creation, that this will never happen. Here's what he says in verses 12 through 14 summarized. God says he will set, the word in Hebrew is nathan, it means added. He will set or he will add his bow, his rainbow, to the sky. That's the sign of the covenant. That's our continuing proof that God will keep his word regarding not destroying the world with water anymore, ever again. But that sign is meaningless as proof of God's faithfulness if it pre-existed. If it was in the sky as a regular feature of the, the heavens of the world, if it was just there like the sun, stars, moon, clouds, if we just could look up at any given time and see rainbows, then when God says, this is proof of my faithfulness, it means nothing. By definition, a sign is something unique. It's different. It changes the moment so that from evermore I see something I never saw before. And then I rem- remember and I know God is keeping his promise. Well, folks, just pure physics tells us that if rainbows never appeared in the sky prior to chapter 9 of Genesis then there was never enough atmospheric moisture in the sky to make it possible. It's further proof here that the flood itself changed things, and among all, among all the things it changed, it brought the existence of rain into being. By the way, that also tells you something about the faithfulness of a man called Noah, who was willing to devote 100 plus years of his life to building a giant boat in an age that had never seen rain, much less a flood. So Genesis 2, moving on now, that's the starting point. Genesis 2, verse 7 now, Moses writes, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now this description is more detail on the way God formed man back from what we saw day six in day 6 of chapter 1. I want you to look just briefly in your Bible. You, can't, you don't have to look very far. Go back to chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27, has two parts to it. The first part of verse 27, God created man in his own image. That part is being explained in greater detail here in verse 7. This is how he did the first half of chapter 1, verse 27. First, he says that man was created from the material of the earth. Everything else in God's plan of creation up until that moment, had been created ex nihilo. That's the Latin phrase that you'll sometimes hear to describe the manner of creation. It literally means out of nothing. God and God alone has the power 
to bring physical creation into existence out of nothing. We now actually have a principle of physics that you cannot create or destroy matter. It can only be changed into other forms, into energy or back from energy into matter. So you cannot, in our experience in the laws of physics, do what God is at work himself doing in the first week of creation, making things out of nothing. But now, when he gets to man, he doesn't do that anymore. He creates man out of the dirt of the ground, out of the dust, out of the pre-existing material of the land itself. Formed, the word formed, when you, when you see it there in verse 7, yatsar, yatsar, it means pottery. Literally, it's the word for pottery. This is where the Bible gets that picture of God being a potter and us being clay. And the word Adam literally is dirt or earth in Hebrew. So he names us after the material. He forms us using a word in Hebrew that means the potter making clay. We heard earlier in chapter 1 he used his hands. He formed us with his hands. Not that he has physical hands as we said then, but it's a picture of his loving, caring attention to this one part of his process. But the question that you should be asking, we should be asking right now is, why did he use dirt? Why didn't he use ex nihilo? Why didn't he create us out of nothing like he did everything else? After all, if man are God's greatest creation, and if all of the other creation was being made for our benefit, if it was all leading up to us and we're the crescendo of it all, then why make us from dirt? Right? It seems lowly. It seems commonplace. You would think we would be the the crown jewel of the process. And yet, by the manner, it seems the opposite. What is he doing this for? Well, you get the answer for why in chapter 3. But for now, I just want you to know God was making decisions here, including the decision on how to create man, with a full knowledge of what the future holds. And he did it this way because of what he knew was coming in chapter 3. Had he done it any other way, for example, if he had done it ex nihilo, what happens in chapter 3 would have been a terrible, terrible outcome. For all of us. And I'll show you why when we get there. Moving forward, he takes this lump of clay that he's formed into the man we call Adam, and he breathed, it says, life into the man. Now, this is a completely different experience than was applied at any stage earlier in creation. There is no parallel to this anywhere else. God gives physical life to Adam, and then a spirit life, a spiritual life in the moment that he does this breathing process. Isaiah talks a little bit about this in Isaiah 42, verse 5, when he writes, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Job talks at times about existential issues, what it means to exist, what it means to be man. And in chapter 34 of Job, verse 14, he writes, If God should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Isn't that interesting? Should God determine to do so, he pulls back his breath, his spirit, in other words, all flesh would perish. So what keeps us physically alive then, the inevitable conclusion we draw from Scripture is, Physical life, human life, is not a biological process. It includes the physical biology of the body. Yes, that's obvious. But life is not determined by the biology. The biology is determined by the spirit. And the removal of the spirit that God gave us will result in the body dying. 
And another way to say it is, until God removes the spirit, the body can't die. Remember the parable Jesus told at one point about the man who stored up goods for himself, forgetting that one day he has to die? At the end of that parable, Luke, Luke 12:19, Jesus says this, Speaking as that man, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? The phrase there to me is evocative uh, or connected to what Isaiah is saying. God reached into the man's life and said, Today's the day I need your soul back. Body dies. That's how it happens. Remember Jesus on the cross? He gave up his spirit and then his body died. No one took his life from him. He says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. He picked the moment of his death on the cross by when he chose to give up his spirit. Then his body died. And it's God's spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, who was the actor in the process giving men their spirit. That comes out of Job as well. Job 33, 4. Job says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. So God creates man here. And let's consider what we have here as a starting point. This is back to the original point I made this morning. Moses is trying to explain to us how we got from perfection to where we are. And he's going to take a couple of chapters at least to do that. But here at the very beginning, he's starting with what we were in the beginning. Perfectly formed physically, a man whose body is literally perfect. Wouldn't we all like to see that person? Well, it existed. Adam was perfect physically, sinless. And, and probably more importantly, he was perfect spiritually. He had an innocent spirit. A spirit that does not know evil, a spirit that did not know sin. In that state, if Adam were to have remained in that state, he would have lived eternally. Death is not natural. Death is not the part of creation God intended. That's not his design in the sense that he didn't intend that to be the state we would be in eternally. Adam has a body that is not decaying. It's not subject to any kind of of, of decaying or aging process in the sense of reaching a point of, of, of where it can't function any longer. And he has a spirit that's not offensive to God. It's not opposed to God. It has no reason to be put to death. He is in a perfect state. He can live eternally in that state. But now... As we come into the life that we know, all our kids, ourselves, our grandkids, and of course, if you go back in time, everyone between us and Adam, when we were born, we don't come into the world like Adam. We don't. We inherit a disobedient spirit. Paul says we come into the, li- into the world with a spirit that is opposed to God, that is an enemy of God. And we all know this just from a few years of life. We all have bodies that are corrupting and dying and decaying. I mean, some of us do our best to avoid admitting it. And trying to cover it up. But the truth is, we all know it. It's inevitable. Now, God is at work correcting these problems. Since the time of Adam's fall, he's been at work correcting him. For example, with each believer, with each person who comes to faith in Christ, you receive a new spirit. The one you're born with is replaced by a new one. And the same way God gave Adam his spirit is the way we receive our new spirit, by the Holy Spirit, by his arrival in our heart. That comes in, of course, for us as a consequence of faith. Later, though, we still have a problem, of course. At the moment, I believe I still got my old body. So I'm halfway there. I've got, I've got half the problem solved. I'm still dragging the other half with me, though. I still have the old, corrupt, sinful, decaying body. 
but I got a better spirit. But Adam was two parts. He was the clay and he was the breath of God, spirit. The spirit's been fixed for those who believe, but the body's still hanging around. That's where we go to somewhere like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the fact that on a future day, we, in the twinkling of an eye, we will receive that new body that we all look for. We call it the rapture for the church. But it's resurrection. It's resurrection. It's a new physical body joining to the spirit. When that day comes, the problem's solved for each person in that situation. We have lost not only the old spirit, but now we've given away the old body. We're all new again. You and I will reach the point to where Adam was in the beginning. We'll know what it was like. I guess, to be like Adam. We have a different life than any other creature because we have a different starting point than any other creature. Plants, for example, are biologically alive. But they do not have kynefesh. That was the Hebrew word for the, the living life blood. Animals, on the other hand, do have kynefesh. They have a living life blood, but they don't have the spirit that comes from the breath of God. Animals can die... Because they have this lifeblood. They can be put to death. That made them a suitable sacrifice when God put the law together with Moses and gave it to the nation of Israel. And he used animals to take the place of men to make a picture, to make a story about what sin requires. It requires a death. And these animals become a substitute, at least for a time. But an animal cannot be murdered. An animal cannot be murdered. The term murder refers to an unlawful taking of life. And in order for something to be unlawful, it has to be against God's intent, against God's desires. In Genesis chapter 9, after the flood's over, when he's giving the rainbow and the covenant, God also gives this to Noah. He institutes the eating of meat. He institutes the, the opportunity now to finally eat meat. And he says this, he says in 9.5, he says, Surely I will require your life blood, kinefesh, from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. We'll talk more about what all that means when we get there, but the summary of it for today is there is a penalty God institutes in chapter 9 for the taking of a man's life, and the penalty is that the one who takes it shall have his life taken. We call it capital punishment. That is God's pronouncement against the taking of man's life. That is the penalty that must be paid, the stiffest penalty possible. He also institutes in that same part of chapter 9 that an animal that takes a man's life must be put to death as well. So there's an important principle of Scripture, and it's one that's virtually lost in our modern culture today, that we have a spiritual obligation, according to Scripture, to treat other men with love and respect regardless of how they treat us, because they are made in the image of God. That's their reason to be treated, not by how they treat us, but by how God sees them. That's the basis for why we treat them well, why we treat them properly. But should that person or any person take it upon themselves to end the life of someone in an illegal way, murder in other words, then they have nothing to expect back from people except the same judgment in response. Capital punishment is a legitimate, reasonable, legal remedy according to Scripture if it's carried out under those terms. So given these injunctions, can we ever take the life of another man? Not if it's unlawful, of course. That's murder. But God himself says yes under certain circumstances. I sat on a death penalty case as the foreman of the jury one time, and we had to come to the conclusion that the man deserved death. And of course, most of the people in the jury are very, very disturbed over it. They're 
wrestling with it. And that's a good thing. No one should enter into that decision lightly. But at the end of the day, if you believe the facts are such that the person's guilty of murder, personally, I had no qualms whatsoever about the judgment because it's not my fault. And it wasn't really even my decision. The pronouncement was already provided by a God who had already made the decision and their own actions set forth the need for the penalty, not mine. I'm just the one saying this is what should happen. And that man was eventually put to death a few years later. And that was the legal remedy God had provided. Understand that it is the image of God in the form of His breath making possible the life of men that sets up this entire premise that says there is such a thing as murder. There is such a thing as a life that cannot be taken by anyone except God because He was the giver of that life. There is no one of any higher authority than Him and therefore He is the only authority who may dictate the taking of it by His own choice in the moment He removes the soul or by the hands of men when He permits it as a part of a lawful process. That's God at work through the government, through men. So in chapter 2, verse 8, now Moses moves past the point of where we have man in existence. So we know we're in day six. We know we have man now on the earth. Then in verse 8, he says, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, and the bedillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to cultivate it and keep it. This is, if you will, going back to chapter 1, remember when it says he made man, he formed a male and female? All of what we're reading right here took place between the male and the female moment in chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 8, is a summary, a topic sentence, for what follows in 9 through 15. He plants a garden, puts the man there. That's the topic sentence. Verses 9 through 15 is how he got there, how he did that. God sets up this garden. Now, here's what you need to know clearly as you see the text. He is not creating plants here again. This is something different. This is one way in which we sometimes get confused about the time. We're in day six. Plants are already on the earth. Long ago. Whole three days ago. And now man has been created. So man's already on the earth. But what God does now, as the text says, is he, in a completely separate act, he makes a garden. And this goes back to the analogy I gave a moment ago. There's a difference between having plants and having a garden. This is a specially arranged set of plants in a really nice setting, maybe with a little fence around it. It's, it's set up like a garden would be set up, okay, with the, with the little fake statues and everything else. When he says he sets up, in the Hebrew it means he cultivates. He grows a new garden. Notice where it is, and this is where observation of the text starts to really open questions you may never have had before when you looked at this chapter if you've read it before the garden was east now the cardinal directions on the compass are relative right standing here i have an east and a west and a north and a south so he's making something that is east east from what 
The only logical answer is east from man's perspective. Remember, the man already exists. Man is standing somewhere doing whatever he does when he's got nothing else to do. So it's east from the man. The whole point of of Moses giving a cardinal direction is not to draw your attention to the garden. It's to draw your attention to the fact that it is from a perspective that he is doing this, from a point of a vantage point from which man is observing this. He's watching it from the east. This implies that God intended man to be an audience. It's being done so that God can show something to Adam while he does it. Furthermore, then after the garden is ready, what does it say? God placed man in the garden. The word placed in Hebrew is sum, and it literally means he assigned him there. He set him there. He assigned him there. Now that draws an interesting question in my mind. How did he actually do that? Did he like pick him up and drop him in the garden? Did he just sort of blink his eyes like genie and next thing he's, he's there? I think the text, by using the word sum, suggests that he just told Adam, that's your place, go, and Adam walked there. He assigned him to that place. Then why does God want man to witness this process, and why does he set up a garden, and why does he put him in a garden? Why does all of this happen? Well, there's several answers. The first is simple. This is God's way to communicate a loving intention to provide for man. It says something to man about what God's intentions are for him. Look at it from Adam's point of view. If you think about who Adam was in this moment and try to see what he sees and think like like he's probably thinking, remember, he's less than a day old. He's less than a day old. Adam's the only human being in the world who could not say, I wasn't born yesterday. (laughs) He's literally a day old. Now, he's got adult intellect. I'm not saying he's an infant. But I am saying, what's, what's a memory for Adam? What's his basis for understanding anything? He just came into consciousness. This is day six. What does he know about anything? God could have given him the ability to speak. He could have given him the knowledge of all kinds of things right from the start. I'm not saying he had to learn it like an infant, but maybe this is the learning process we're watching. Maybe this is what God was doing, in part, to communicate something to Adam about who God was, who Adam was, what their relationship was going to be, why he even existed. Here he is watching this world he's not known for but maybe a few hours. And then there's a garden being created and then a voice or God, however he sees him, telling him to go to the garden. You see the point? From Adam's point of view, there's a lot to learn. This is important stuff. Otherwise, he doesn't know anything. And the garden, we're told here, is filled with trees, trees that are pleasing to look at and good for food. Remember, this is not the moment when trees were being created. This is simply an added moment in which God is producing a special place with special plants that are set up just the way he wants. Now, in this garden are notably two unique trees. We come back to look at these a little more later. Certainly the tree of knowledge and good of evil comes back a little later. But just for a moment, let's take just a second to look at one, the tree of life. What do we know about the tree of life? Well, it's mentioned here first. It's mentioned later in chapter 3, verse 22. It appears later in Revelation Chapter 22, Revelation 22. Listen to this, Revelation 22, verse 2. On either side of the river, this is speaking about the the new heavens and new earth, not the millennial kingdom, we're past that point. We're now looking at the new heavens and new earth that come along with the heavenly Jerusalem that descends down. And we're there, and God is there, and the streets are gold, and so on. There's a river that runs through the center of the city from, from out of the temple. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
Is this the source of our life then? Is this the source of man's life? Was it that way back for Adam in the garden? Well, first we know that it can't be the literal source or the ultimate source of life because all life doesn't come from the tree. Animals don't eat from this tree and they're alive. It's not like life in and of itself comes from the tree. And furthermore, the source of everything is God. So you can't say the tree is somehow where everything starts. And for that matter, we know God doesn't need a tree to keep us alive. So maybe God has chosen to make this tree, the tree of life, the means by which he will sustain life eternally. Again, not because the tree is special, but because God has chosen to do it that way. Could have done it anyway. That's the way he may have chosen to do it. Genesis 3:22. when we hear about this tree again, after they've fallen in the garden, God kicks them out of the garden. And listen, he says, the God, Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So it suggests that the tree has been given the capability to keep physical life going forever. By God's choice, that's how he designed it. And so now... He doesn't permit it. We'll talk more in chapter 3 about why. A better question to ask would be, why create a tree to provide eternal life? Why not just do it without a tree? And I think the answer is the same both for the garden and for our future. There will be a tree we have to visit regularly and eat from it if we are to sustain our life eternally. But that then makes it a very powerful reminder that our life has a sustainer. Think about the problem if there's eternal life. As you live eternally, I think over time you're likely to stop thinking about why and just take it for granted. We know about life and death, right? We're conscious of the fact that life is tenuous. And so we pray and we appeal to God for strength and for health and we pray when people die and we mourn when people die and we're always mindful of that. What happens when that goes away? Are we going to be just as thankful and mindful of God as our sustainer, as our life giver? Perhaps this tree becomes his symbol for reminding us that God is always there providing. He is continuing to uphold our life. And then that brings us to the other tree, the tree of knowledge. Let's just say a couple things in passing as we move past it. It is a real tree. It's got fruit on it. You can eat from it. We know woman will do that. And so will man. It has pleasing food. That's what the woman says when she sees it in chapter 3. And therefore, I'm going to tell you, I don't think it's any different than any other tree when you look at it. I don't think it stands out. I don't think it's got like a big flashing neon red sign that says, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. I think it just looks like any other tree. In fact, I'm not so sure it isn't just any other tree. What made it different was only what God said about it. It doesn't require that the tree itself have anything different about it. We'll look again at that later. The rest of the description here deals with rivers. Now, there is an interesting detail here. In the Hebrew, there is a verb tense change midway through the description. In verse 10, the description is in the past tense. So he's describing in verse 10 what it was like when you lived in the garden, as Adam would have at that time, and watched the waters come out and divide into four rivers. But then after that, the verses are all described in the present tense, which would mean in Moses' day when he wrote this book, which is after the flood, after the garden is gone. It would seem as though the initial description is one handed down by Adam. But when Moses wrote this account, he's writing it from the point of view of what people in his day could have gone and looked at had they gone to the region. So the garden being destroyed by the flood, now there's only these four rivers left. Here's an interesting detail, by the way. 
The garden stood as it was originally created for 700 years after Adam's death. 700 years after Adam died and Adam lived 930 years. For 1,600 plus years, the Garden of Eden was still on the earth. Men could go up and look at it. They just couldn't go in. After the flood, now it's gone. And then lastly, chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. I want to end on this because it sets us, I think, with something to think about all week. The word for cultivate there is abad in the Hebrew. It literally means to serve. It's the word for serve. Adam is told by God to serve God by keeping the garden or preserving it or securing it. That's that's the sense in the Hebrew. Basically, Adam gets his first job on day one, which is cultivate, keep my garden. That's how you serve me. Just like most young men, Adam's first real job was taking care of the yard for dad. Turns out the oldest profession is gardening. Why was Adam created? To serve God. To serve in the garden. Even from the beginning. Now his work was different from ours. It's in a perfect setting. It's without the fall, without the curse on the ground. It's a different kind of work. Presumably not as hard and frustrating, more rewarding. Probably was easier to keep everything trimmed and looking pretty. The bushes probably looked like the archangels, Michael and Gabriel, and it's like Disneyland all the time. But it was still his service to God. Scripture teaches us that we will work in the kingdom when we are in our perfect new bodies, for the kingdom. We will have farming. Isaiah talks about farming and building and planting and harvesting. There will again be work, even after we leave this world and we are not in sin any longer. And therefore, I would make an argument from this and from other texts of Scripture that retirement, the concept that the world pursues, is not a biblical concept. No man is ever portrayed in the Bible as retiring in the sense of ceasing from working and serving God. We aren't supposed to cease work and then just go serve ourselves until we die. That is not a biblical concept. Now, you can cease a full-time occupation. You can retire from the job you had. That's not unbiblical. But that just becomes a transition to serving God in some new way. Not fishing until you're dead. Paul warns about that kind of lifestyle, as you may know, in 2 Thessalonians. He says this, chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Paul says this because the testimony of our lives is not just a testimony about what God's done for us. The testimony of a Christian life ultimately is a testimony that we are his and that we are serving him. And so the nature of our existence should be from day one and into eternity to serve God somewhere, somehow, wherever he places you. Adam wasn't exempt from that. Adam was given that job to serve God in the garden. Thank you, Father, that we've had a chance this morning to understand a little better how it is that you work to create us through Adam and that you did it with perfection and that you did it so that Adam may know and, and understand your love and your care and so that he might serve you. That, Father, represents your perfect plan for all creation, for us as well, that though we are yet not perfect, there is a plan in which you will arrive at that for us and then in the meantime we serve you. 
Father, I pray that since we know that Adam once served you and that we know we will once serve you yet in the future, here we are in between, called to serve you now. I pray you would give us a heart to do that. Father, I, I think through your word and I'm, I reflect on the fact that the only time, the only time in history, in all your creation, in which serving you results in a reward is now. This is, the, this is it, Father. You, you, you hold out an opportunity for reward if we serve you now, though we will always serve you. What a shame it would be, Father, if the one time we have to serve you in hope of a reward is the time we fail. So I pray, Father, that we would be mindful of the urgency and of the opportunity and we would take, it, take full advantage of it by serving you in, in the greatest possible way. And let this church, Father, be a training opportunity, a, a coaching and, and edifying opportunity, an encouraging place so that we may all be better servants. And then lead us into this time of communion, Father, mindful of how your sacrifice makes all this possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.